Welcome to this week's Energy Show. Now, where do solar panels, batteries, and inverters come from? No, they don't come from the solar store. They come from distributors. Distributors order in huge quantities directly from manufacturers, and then they distribute efficiently in smaller quantities to contractors to do installations. Now, these distributors provide a tremendous, tremendous service to solar and storage industry. Even though they mark up the equipment slightly to make a profit, which is important, they really reduce costs for the contractors contractors and the installers. And eventually those lower costs obviously flow to the businesses and homeowners with these solar and storage systems on the roof. I found just over the past 20 years, it's more efficient and actually cheaper to order equipment through a good distributor rather than purchasing huge quantities directly from the manufacturers. And one of the very best distributors in my experience is Baywa Renewable Energy, or just just Baywa. They're based in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Their parent company is this huge $18 billion multinational equipment and energy company based in Germany, but they have a really strong U.S. presence. And what I really like about Baywa is their focus and their efficiency. And I especially like working with their team. They're led by Boaz Seufer. And what really impresses me about Baywa is their culture. It sounds like a fuzzy thing. Why am I talking about culture when we're talking about solar and storage? But it really makes a difference in the competitive solar and battery industry. So welcome to the show, Boaz. Thank you, Barry. I'm happy to be here. All right. Great. Well, I kind of gave a rough introduction to Baywa. Could you give us a little bit more information about the company and your areas of focus and things like that? Sure. And yeah, I'm really happy to hear you say that you believe in the value that distributors create. Obviously, we do too. And the way we look at distribution is probably a little different than how some other companies look at it. So, in terms of our areas of focus, where some companies might answer that with geography or specific products, I think the most important things to us are trust and partnership, and that's what we focus on the most. And when we think about partnership, we're thinking both of how we support the manufacturers whose products we're distributing and, of course, the solar contractors and other companies that we supply those products to. So, yeah, we do think that that distribution is an incredibly important service that supports contractors with working capital, with efficient supply, with planning. We forecast on behalf of contractors. We support logistics, and we do all of those things much more efficiently than a a manufacturer can. And yeah, as you said, we're based in Santa Fe, but more than 60% of our workforce is remote. That's one of the big trends we're working with in our company. So we have folks all over the country. I mean, not just sales teams, but, you know, we have a computer software developer based in Austin. We have a person on our people experience team based in Bend, Oregon, a customer service person in Portland, Maine, etc. So headquarters is becoming a less important term for us. For sure. (laughs) Well, you certainly have a nice place to have headquarters in Santa Fe, and it's always a pleasure for me to come out for your annual conference. I agree. I'm looking out at the mountains through my window right now. Ah, (laughs) and and the weather's probably terrific out there. We're just talking about, like, conceptually distributors, and one of the reasons why the trust and the partnership, I think, is so important for the solar and the storage industry is we're in a very dynamic industry. This is not like you're distributing EMT conduit, which is a complete commodity, and that it's the same conduit that you can buy from a dozen different places for, for 25 years, the technology changes and projects change. So in having that trust and partnership with the source of your equipment, I find is really invaluable. Mm, thank you. So a lot has changed in the, the solar industry. So how has the economics of, from a distribution side changed 
for your commercial customers and partners and your residential companies? I think there are kind of two tracks to talk about relating to system economics, and one is hardware costs. Obviously, those keep trending down, even with tariffs, et cetera. The overall, the price of solar equipment has come down dramatically. I've been in solar for 20 years, and certainly in the last 10 years, we've seen dramatic reduction. So I think... When Focused Energy started, we were selling Sanyo HIT modules for something approaching $4 a watt or you know, $3.50 a watt, something like that. And when I started a couple of years later, it was more like 3 bucks a watt, and we were selling Sharp modules you know, for $2.20, something like that. And of course, now we have modules available sub $0.50 cents a watt consistently and, and high-quality modules. Premium modules are under a dollar a watt. So I would say prices have dropped between three times and eight times in the last 10 years for hardware. So obviously that affects system economics. What makes that a little less of an effect than someone might think is that incentives have also fallen at the same time. So some incentives like the federal tax credit are proportional. So 10 years ago, you could get a 30% tax credit on a system that cost you 10 or $12 a watt installed, and now you get a 30% tax credit on a system that costs you, say, $3 a watt installed. So the tax credit is less. And also local incentives, rebate programs, state tax credits. Uh, in some in some places, net metering has been under fire, and so that's kind of eroded the gains that we might have had by strictly by hardware costs dropping. But the more interesting category is what we call soft costs in the industry that relate to the marketing and sales needed to execute on systems, the overhead, the operational expenses, anything that's not a direct cost related to solar. And and we've really seen non-hardware costs drop dramatically in the last 10 years. And I was just thinking about this, that 10 years ago, a one-day install was almost unheard of, and it was only a few companies who were trying to break through that. And now, in a lot of markets, that's pretty common, or two-day install for smaller contractors. And I'm not suggesting that we should strive for faster installations and erode quality. That's the last thing we need. But I think installation efficiency and the utility of hardware has really improved. That's also contributed to costs coming down. So I would say overall... In the last 10 years, systems now cost one-third what they did. Um, and at the same time, energy costs have gone up. Yeah. So systems are probably more price competitive today than they ever have been. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting about how hard contractors work to reduce their costs. And mm-hmm. I've been striving to speed up my installation work for, heck, for almost 20 years. But you get to the point where if you speed it up too much, if you give the incentives to the guys doing the work mm-hmm. to work fast, the quality goes down. And mm-hmm. I just refuse to work with, well, I mean, we don't do it, but what scares me are companies that give their installers an incentive per watt or per panel to install them on the roof. Because what will invariably mm-hmm. happen is they're going to cut corners. They might not hit a raft or whatever, and, and we're you know, I've been in business for 20 years, so we care about the system, and that kind of incentive doesn't help. What I find really useful is not just to think about the time it takes to do the work on site, but to see how you can do a job from a contract 
to getting interconnected really fast. And we've mm-hmm. done it regularly in as few as two weeks. Wow. Uh, not doing it now because we're in a super busy season, but we can sign a contract on Monday, have the engineering received on Wednesday, get the installation done on Friday, have the inspection done the next Monday, and have it interconnected by the following Friday. And that's a combination of efficient processes, working with a pretty good utility. I mean, I'm, I'm saying this now as a PG&E is really good when it comes to standard net metering mm-hmm. and making sure that we're in a jurisdiction that can turn these things around fast. So that to me, I used to call it the rapid permitting method, just to find a way to get a job done in two weeks. Then all of your costs go down. Mm-hmm. So it's, yep. a, it's a challenge. It is. And that's exciting to see that kind of ability to build your backlog that quickly. I know there are contractors who are designing for the possibility one day of being able to do a next day install. I mean, obviously, that's great for customer experience, too. Yep, yep. All right, well, we talked about the nuts and bolts of distribution, and I really like Baywa's capabilities there. But what really impresses me is Baywa's culture. Culture is a fuzzy management term, but it has a big impact on an organization's longevity and profitability. So, Boaz, tell me how you established that culture at Baywa and how it's been evolving over the years. Yeah, so we started talking about culture in a really intentional way, I think around 2013. And as you remember, I'm sure that's about when some of the national solar contractors seem to be taking over the world. And and there were folks saying that there's not going to be any place for the local solar contractor or even a regional solar contractor. There's not going to be a place for distribution in this industry. But the solar cities and, and those kinds of companies are going to just own the market. And I think they were, at that point, around 70% of the residential market. And I had a meeting with our CEO at the time, Paul Benson, and we were trying to figure out, well, do we need to become a national integrator? And, you know, Baywa probably has the resources to do that and might even have the will to do that if that's what we thought the best strategy was. We kicked that around for a while. And then we said, we believe that local contractors are the the heartbeat of the solar industry. And and if this industry is going to be quality-driven, then we want to support that. And we also believe in distribution, and we believe in our own capabilities and our own wherewithal. So we want to stay the course. But we can't go out and gain market share. We can't just disrupt what's happening right now. So let's turn our attention inward. And how can we be the strongest, healthiest company that we can be? And by the following year, Paul had moved on to the board of Baywa RE US, and I was responsible then for the distribution business. And we started working on culture from really a, a wide variety of angles. So I think a great place to start is core values, and we did that work early on. We also developed job descriptions that didn't read like a typical kind of technical boilerplate job description for a salesperson or a customer service person, but we really tried to create accountability and alignment through job descriptions. That was a project that we worked on for a while. And then we really started learning, and we have a lot of people in the organization that were motivated to drive that learning process. 
Eventually, we developed a diversity diversity and inclusion meeting in our company. We have a weekly call called Learning is Fun. We use Slack for our instant messaging and other functions, and we have Slack channels dedicated to learning on strategy, on what's going on in the market, on what's going on in business in general. And so I think building a culture of learning was a big part of that. And one of the conclusions that we've come to is that the best way to transmit culture is not just by talking about your core values over and over again, but by developing a broader common language that people understand and, and buy into. And what I mean by common language is, you know, every business uses tools. Like you referred to um, processes that you use in your business to drive faster installation turns. Those processes probably have names, and you might have measurements associated with those processes. And if everybody in your company is talking about that process in the same way and talking about the measurements in the same way, that actually creates culture around the intentions behind the process and behind the metrics. So common language for us refers to a lot of tools, decision-making tools, accountability tools, process development tools, lessons learned tools like that. So we all use the same language for those things. So when somebody says, I think we should do an UDA on this, everybody knows what an UDA is, and, and then that tool can be used to make a decision. And then the other area for common language is taking core values one step farther to kind of behaviors I and mean, describing behaviors. And I just published an article on LinkedIn explaining how we use attributes as stepping stones two core values. So we have six core values, but we have 18 attributes, and the attributes get talked about all the time. Things like dependability, teamwork, but the point is these attributes give people a way to think about and talk about and hold themselves accountable for behaviors that support the culture and really drive it. So, well, yeah, I'll tell you, Boaz, what, yeah. every, every time I hear you start talking about these things and these factors and behaviors and, and metrics, I'm like, it's like you're giving me a homework assignment. Yeah. So the last time I had this feeling when I was at the conference in March, they're going to go back and do all this stuff. And now I'm going to think about that later today because it's so important. And I really like what you said about you know looking inward. I've had experiences in my business life where you're in a business and you suddenly have some irrational competitors and how are you going to how are you going to deal with an irrational competitor? Perhaps like a, a crazy national installer that's just losing money hand over foot. And by focusing on inward factors kind of allows you to, to improve your business and also kind of wait them out until they may kind of change or disappear. Mm. And you know, you've done a fantastic job of that, especially because we're in the solar coaster and it's going to change again. It's really hard. As you know, like sometimes it feels like there's a train coming at you and you're standing on the tracks and you have to change. You have to kind of give up your identity or you have to change your concept of how you create value. And of course, sometimes that's true, but just because the train seems to be coming at you doesn't mean it's going to maintain momentum and it doesn't mean it's the only train or those are the only tracks or whatever you want to do with that metaphor. So yeah, we haven't always stayed the course some ways, but that was a pivotal moment for us for sure. Yeah. yeah so Let's just be specific. What are two or three suggestions that you have for solar contractors to develop a good organizational structure? So I think most solar contractors don't need to get too creative about organizational structure, meaning that a functional structure 
functional meaning there's a sales function, there's a marketing function, there's a field operations function, maybe a customer service function, right? That's what I mean by functional. That's usually more than adequate for a solar contracting company. And it might not be if the company becomes multi-location or hundreds of employees or things like that, where they have to look at a regional structure or a, or a customer type structure, right? Where you have a VP of commercial and a VP of residential and a VP of network partnerships or whatever. So I think functional is fine, but then there's plenty of work to do always on the structure in terms of clarifying roles and accountabilities and alignment and making sure that everybody in the company knows what the critical processes are that connect those functional departments together. And for a solar contracting business, that's almost always the customer journey, right? From the time they first make contact with you until the time you get permission to operate on the system or even beyond, right? When they call you for service two or five or 10 years later. So that's the core process and designing that process right and making sure that at every touch point where you're interacting with the customer you are causing the customer to have the experience that you want them to have and that's empathy driven that's keeping in mind what the customer is going through when they haven't heard from you in a couple of weeks and they're waiting for an installation to happen or when the module type changes because of a manufacturing change and how you manage that change right all of those are design opportunities and for the structure of an organization to support those design opportunities, somebody needs to know that they're accountable for each of those touch points, right? And that's when you can start applying metrics or you can start supporting the people that are accountable for each touch point and really making each touch point dramatically better. And I think that's an opportunity to differentiate also from competitors. So as I said, functional is usually fine and sweat the small stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the processes are important, documenting it, making sure everybody knows it. Uh, talking a little bit about business ethics. I, I remember several years ago, I took a business ethics course in business school. It was Wharton, by the way, and, and one of our better known graduates, I think he must have skipped that whole course. But anyway, I digress. Many people in the industry industry are literally trying to save the world and just you know making sure that they have the right ethics and culture. What are some of the ethical things or cultural things that you see as being common at the successful solar contracting companies that you're working with? Mm. Probably the, the cultures of the companies we work with can vary quite a bit, but certainly I guess two things come to mind. One is quality. And I'm talking about the quality of construction, the quality of equipment, contractors that kind of pair their reputation with their workmanship are, have been quite successful. And then the other is customer service. And I know some contractors who even make statements, kind of like a Bezos statement, right? I forget his words exactly, but the statement being that nothing is more important than customer satisfaction. And we're willing to lose money on a job. We're willing to run a crew out there at midnight. We're willing to go out there on Christmas Day, whatever it is, to, to make our customers happy. And I don't know that everybody needs to be similarly fanatical, but the mindset of making sure the customer is taken care of both from a system quality standpoint and from a service standpoint, I think those are two ethical things that come to mind. But, but again, the cultures are really different. Oh, I, I want to add to that that in the sales process, that's when all the promises get made. 
and then the field operations team and the design team and the you know those folks have to fulfill those promises and if there's any disconnect between the promises that are made and what actually gets fulfilled then that causes kind of a ethical abyss that customer can fall into and i think that's really dangerous yeah yeah and it's really hard to recover from that i mean it gets kicked up to me every once in a while a problem that you know a mistake that we made a problem that we have and we're going to lose money on this job but we don't have a choice because you know leave the customer upset and you know with the, with the reviews that are out there on Yelp and Google Plus or whatever it's just like everybody's going to know about it and your reputation's the most important thing and then the way it flows back to the profitability is you get a lot of customers from referrals and then you kind of avoid having to buy leads like that we're coming towards the end of the segment but I wanted to really talk to you about how did you get into the solar business and what do you do in your spare time when it's not the solar business how I got into the solar business, you're going to laugh. Like This is a, a total New Mexico story. I bought a piece of land off the grid. I'm in a remote part of New Mexico and decided I was going to build a house off the grid. And I had $3,000 to do it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so I built a little 200-square-foot cabin, mostly with found materials for about half that. And then I wandered over to the local solar contractor, Positive Energy, who's now one of the most successful solar contractors in New Mexico and very, very excellent company. I was, I guess this was in, in 1999, so it was the, the Y2K boom. I bought a system consisting of two used 50-watt modules and two, I think they were used Trojan T105 batteries, DC-only system for a light, uh, or maybe I had two lights um, in, in that first cabin. I also thought, well, this might be an interesting industry to be in. I had been in construction and built some passive solar homes, and, and there had been some solar on some of those homes, and that always seemed pretty interesting. So I, I asked them for a job, and I was lucky enough to get hired. And since it was Y2K, we were doing a ton of big backup power systems. So I got great experience in a variety of backup power-related things. And then the following year, things kind of died down when the grid remained functional, despite Y2K. <laughs> yep. And so I went over to our distributor, which was Denkoff Solar, and that's when I met Paul. And he hired me. I built solar water pumps for a while and eventually got into sales, started a couple businesses in solar heating, did some fun stuff in large-scale biomass-fired district energy, and eventually I came back to distribution. So, yeah, it's been a kind of a crazy ride. My system is now up to 1,200 watts, um, which <laughs> for me is like a luxury. But I don't use a lot of energy. In New Mexico, we don't have like big cooling loads or anything, and the refrigerator is my biggest load by far. So, yeah, that's how I got into it. And as far as what I do outside solar, for one thing, I have three kids and spend a lot of time with them. I hike I'm in Santa Fe. That's kind of like the obvious thing to do. How could you not? It's beautiful here. So weekends, usually with coworkers, get to talk about you know all the creative stuff about work because we're not in the office trying to just get our tasks done. And been practicing yoga lately. I try to keep my brain sharp with the Sunday crossword and Sudoku puzzles and stuff like that. But yeah, nothing too exciting. It, it sounds like you know, a typical normal person in the solar business that just loves their work and loves getting some time away. All right. So how can people get in touch with you at Baywa? Yeah. So my email is boaz.soifer at baywa-re.com. And you can find us easily on the net by Googling Baywa RE distribution. And we have a 
a magazine online, a web store for our solar contractor customers. A lot of great resources on there, and would love to hear from anybody. All right, that's great. That's all the time we have on this week's Energy Show, and thanks, Boaz, for joining us. And thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. If you missed any of today's show, you can go to our website at cinnamon.energy and listen to the podcasts. 